Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is, Daniel, the Insanity of Pride. Working our way through the Old Testament, find ourselves in the book of Daniel, learning some great stuff. Daniel is an amazing book. It's got a lot of, um, a lot of great Sunday school stories for little kids and a lot of powerful messages for adults. We're going to see one of those today, if I don't get in the way of it, that is. Uh, man, some deep, deep searching stuff. Uh, of course, all adults pretty much in this story. Daniel's a choppy story. Like I said, last time we were in the book of Daniel, we were in chapter three. There's a whole chapter in the book of Daniel that doesn't mention Daniel. Daniel's not in chapter three. Why is there only three friends? Where's the fourth? Wasn't it Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three Jewish hero young men who stood up and said, we will not eat the king's food because it'll be a defilement to our God, and they were proven right. God stood up for them. Was it not Daniel and his three friends, uh, along with uh, their, uh, you know, stand up and interpreting the king's dream and uh, having this wonderful story in chapter two? So we get to chapter three. There's no, th- there's three friends, but where's Daniel? Nobody asked that question. Well, there is an answer to that question, but it's, uh, by actually the real answer, the the. Literal answer probably is just something simple. Daniel wasn't there. That's all it was. Daniel wasn't there. That's all. There's a very prophetic implication overtones to it that's that's very powerful. I believe anyway. Like I said, you may not believe that, but you can be wrong. Everybody has a right to be that way. So Daniel 4. Daniel 4, we're going to see yet another message of Daniel. Daniel's choppy in some ways. When I say choppy because we have Daniel chapter 3 that doesn't have Daniel in it. Daniel 4 does have Daniel in it, but Daniel 4 is not written by Daniel. It's written by the Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He writes the entire chapter. It's all from him. It's all about his progress. It's all about his journey from paganism to the feet of God. Uh, I think in every way you expect when you get to heaven, I hope you're going there, that you're going to be seeing, among others, some very unlikely characters. By the way, they're probably going to say the same thing about you. What's he doing here? There's going to be others just like that there. <laughs> Among them are going to be a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king, uh, responsible for some heinous stuff. Heaven's going to be full of former sinners. Uh, so if you're not okay with that, you're not going to like heaven. It's going to be cleansed sinners, righteous sinners, uh, saved by grace, uh, totally by grace and not by works, because if their works spoke for them, they would certainly not be in heaven, to be sure. So we're going to be looking at the story of the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. But before we do that, I want to talk to you. We're going to be in the first three verses here just real quick. I want to talk to you about a guy by the name of Chan, Chan Gailey. Anybody know who Chan Gailey is? Former coach of a lot of different places, including the Steelers, Dallas Cowboys, Kansas City Chiefs. Chan Gailey's had a long, illustrious career as a coach, uh, well-known for being a very strong Christian, very outspoken in his faith, very strong about leading his men uh, in the direction toward faith in Christ. Uh, it, part of his early career found him as head coach of Alabama's Troy State. And uh, he's well known there. In fact, it was kind of the launching place for his career in a lot of ways because it was there that he led Troy, otherwise unknown small school, uh, to the national championship. And in fact, I think he did it twice. I think he was there three years and two out of the three they won the national championship, if I'm, if I'm not correct. Anyway, one of the years when he did win... Uh, they were between the time of the end of the season and the national championship game, the month or whatever that is in the, in the wintertime. 
and uh, they were practicing, getting ready for that game, and uh, he was headed outside to go practice with his team, and his secretary opens the door and says, hey, uh, Mr. Gailey, uh, you got a phone call, and he was like, I got a phone call, take a message. I mean, that's, you know, that's what you do. You're, you're a secretary, <laughs> and uh, uh, she said, she said, it's Sports Illustrated. He said, oh, Sports Illustrated. He said, well, I'll be right there. And so, of course, he expected that Sports Illustrated was calling him because here it is, Troy State, otherwise unknown place. And now you think of Alabama, you think of, well, only Chris, Chris, Crimson Tide, right, Jerry? But there is other schools over there. I know we cannot, we cannot name them in, in the presence of Alabama graduates. I realize that. Nonetheless, Troy State is one of those that's there and otherwise was unknown and, and so they're going to probably do an article, he's assuming, uh, want to do an article on Troy State, uh, the success of Troy State. He's had a subscription, of course, to Sports Illustrated himself, familiar that the typical article was about three pages. He was thinking, how do I cram in this great story into, into just three pages? And, you know, he just, all, he's thinking, well, they're going to want to take a picture of me. Is it you know, an action picture with me coaching on the sidelines, or should it be, you know, some kind of glamour shot? Or Anyway, all these things running through his head. And uh, he goes into his office, he picks up the phone, clicks the button, hello, Angela, and yes, is this Mr. Gailey? He says, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. How are you doing? How can I help you? And he says, well, she said on the other end, this is Sports Illustrated. He says, yes, ma'am. Nice to speak to you. He says, this is Sports Illustrated. What we wanted to know was your subscription is running out. Would you like to renew? <laughs> this is what he said in commentary to that. He said these words. He says, you are either humble or you will be. And even though that is not a quote from the scriptures, I would say that is very good theology. Either you are humble or you will be. I want to make a prediction. I want to make a prophecy about your life and mine. This is a nonprofit organization. But I want to make a prophecy about your life the vast majority of your life, a portion of the life that you're living here on earth and the remainder of your life in eternity. Here's the prophecy. You will be humble. You will be. And it, it will either happen in this life, and it can happen one of two ways, by the way. It'll either happen by an act of your will, a decision to humble yourself before God, or... This is not the way you want it to happen. Or God will humble you. And you won't like it when he has to do it. It would be better for you to hear people like me speaking to you or circumstances in your life speaking to you and humble yourself as opposed to God having to pull everything out from under you. But here to be certain, I said it's a nonprofit organization, but I'm prophesying over you, you will be humble. Heaven will be a place of complete abject humility forever. There will be no pride there will be no arrogance. There will be no one assuming the stuff that is actually God's. No one taking credit for God's stuff. Everyone in this room does that all the time. We all do that. We have problems with pride. We really do. And hopefully we're whittling in a way. We're submitting ourselves to the spirit of God as he directs us through his word. And we're listening to the things of God. And God puts his fingers on stuff in our life. And we're saying, yes, God, I agree with you. And I'm just doing that this week. God, I agree with you about this. And I see that, that I need to work on this. And, and I don't like that part about me. God, please help me change. And so God is directing us and seeing us in the direction of humility. But you need to understand that that's what it's going to be. Heaven's going to be a place of humility. Obviously, hell's going to be a place of humility. Complete, abject humility. The meek, as it says in uh, Matthew 5, are going to inherit the earth. Really, they are. 
And it's only going to be the meek. There won't be anybody else there. God creates a new heaven and new earth. He's going to put a bunch of proud, arrogant people back in there? No. Only the humble. Permanently, eternally humble. God speaks of these kind of things. Here's the beginning of humility of all humanity, if you will. He, he speaks of these things in many ways. And here's about one of the most direct places. I have sworn by myself. So if your dad comes into the house and says, boy, I swear, what's about to happen? Probably not good. So when God says, let me, I, I'm swearing to you. Does he need to say that for us to listen? No. But if he ever says that, boy, should we listen. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and I will not turn back that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Do you have a knee? Do you have a tongue? I got two knees. Both of those are going to bow to him. Do you have a tongue? So you're, you're familiar with this, but you probably didn't know it was in the Old Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament. We're going to get to that. But this is not the, it, in Philippians. This, but here's the first time it's said. Here, by the way, Philippians is not the second time it's said. Paul quotes it in Romans. For it is written, as I, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. And then now we're ready for the third time, which may be the only place you're familiar. And I didn't change the heading, by the way. It's supposed to say Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. But that is the quote. For this reason also, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. How many? All of them. You suppose the devil got knees? Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, why does he name those three places? Well, I understand there's knees in heaven, right? Because there's people in heaven. I understand there's knees on earth because there's people on earth. So why does he say under the earth? There must be people there. Anyway, just a thought for you there. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So three different times, once in the old and twice in the new, God says every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Do you suppose he's serious about that? So I'm telling you, this is the beginning of humility. The beginning of humility is bowing yourself before the God of creation. And bowing yourself before the, his son, Jesus. And if you can't get to that place of humility, well, let me just say that you will. If you can't bring yourself there, you will be brought there against your will. Either way, this is where we're all going. Have your sights on that. Have your plans fixed on that because of all the things that you could say about what your future holds, which you haven't the foggiest idea, nor do I, this is an absolute for you and me, all of us. Complete humility is the inevitability for the totality of humanity. Don't you like that? that just, let's say that together. You ready? Complete humility. Say it like you mean it. Complete humility is an inevitability. For the, totality for the totality of humanity. There will not be an exception to that. There will not be, there will not be a, I get off this, you know, I get to go around and I get a free ticket, none of that stuff, no, no fast pass around this. It is a ride that you're going to take. Complete humility is an inevitability of all humanity. Pride leads to destruction and arrogance to downfall. How often? Always. There's no exceptions to it. So if this is you... If pride is you, if that is you, then this is you. If arrogance is you, then this is you. It's where you're going. 
It's where you're headed. And so I would say the train you're on, the way you get off of it is to go ahead and take the, 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 the direction of humility. See, the weird thing about humility is, is that we, we avoid it. Anybody here, if I'm going to say, I want you to line up in the back, those who want to be humiliated. I, who would like to come up front? We talked about this and do interpretive dance. No one volunteers for that because we have this about us. And I'm not saying that necessarily that's a test of humility necessarily, but, but we have this about us that we want, we don't want to be, what we say, embarrassed, right? Don't want to be humiliated. You know, a humble person is very hard to embarrass because they're already low. They're already humble. They already, already have everything on the table and all their shame is up front they already know who they are and they already know where they stand and they really don't care what people think they really don't care the people of us who care because why because we're we have certain levels of this stuff going on in our bloodstream and to a certain whatever certain level that is is going to lead to our downfall uh, and to our destruction but again god does that in his in his grace james chapter 4 verse 6 god is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble so if you're if you're prideful in any way i say anyway to that level god is opposed to you you ever thought about that god's not opposed to me i'm a child of god well now you're a child of god but have you so there's no parents here that were ever opposed to their children? Come on, that's what it means to be a parent. If all you're doing is going right along with what they want to do, then you're not being a parent. But part of a job of a parent is to oppose your kids because they're little, you know, nutcases, little sinners. You gave birth to a bunch of little sinners who are headed off in the wrong direction. You've got to be in opposition to them. Yes, God does oppose his own kids. He has to. Can't just let us run. And again, saved sinners still, thinking like sinners. And so he has to oppose us. But if we'll come to the place where we will humble ourselves, there is much grace there. We're so afraid of being humbled, so afraid of humiliation. That's where the blessings are. That's where the grace is. If you'll just humble yourself instead of having to be made to do it, that you'll just humble yourselves. Here, here's, here's an example of some things happening in our nation. Be, because, by the way, this is a cause of great concern for the culture we live in. Because we're full of the stuff that's leading to destruction and opposition, aren't we? We're full of it. It's tough in our churches, but it's outside the church. It's absolutely rampant. We're full of this pride and arrogance. causes great concern for our own culture. Uh, because the magnification of self is especially high in our part of the world especially high here's some of the magnification that we have as americans our, our american students do not perform well globally on math tests i think we all knew that but here's a statistic you may not know we do not perform well up against the asians for instance or other several other countries but we are our students among the world's leaders in having self-confidence on the other hand about our math abilities so so we're terrible at math, but we don't think we are. I'm awesome. I'm amazing. You talk to a little Oriental guy, he'll say, you know, I don't really know, but then go run up against him against a math test. He will blow you out of the water. It's very, very self-effacing. You see, our culture has taken a major, we've taken a major change. The number of high school seniors, listen, who believed that they were, quote, a very important person in the 1950s was around 12%. Guess what the percentage for the same question is today? It's over 
Our culture was far better back then. We were far smarter. We were not behind in math skills. We were not behind in the world. We were not lacking in all these other things. And yet, but we didn't believe we were either. And now we believe we are, but in fact, we're in the toilet, really. We're, we're, we're way behind. Why is this? Because we have bred our young people. We've got young people here, and we love all y'all. And these, none of this is true about y'all, of course, at all. But we have bred our young people. And again, the, the, who's responsible for this? It's not our kids. It's the adults. We have bred our young people on a doctrine of self-esteem. And let me just say this very clearly. The doctrine of self-esteem is not a biblical doctrine. It is not a Christian doctrine. It is not a godly doctrine. It is a false doctrine. What, what, does, where in the Bible does God say esteem yourself? Tell me. Where does it not say anything other than you ought to esteem God and you ought to esteem others and you ought not think of yourself at all? Anyone that knows the Bible, tell me if I'm wrong. I'm not wrong, but we go against that in our culture because we believe, we believe this whole mantra of self-esteem. Well, you want to know what's happening in our culture today with our young people. They're out there esteeming themselves, older people. Kids have gone crazy. They don't know what, well, yeah, they're doing exactly what we taught them to do. They're out there esteeming themselves. And it's, it's putting them in a position of opposition to the one they do not want opposed to them. You've got a lot of problems in your life. Let me tell you, you don't want God opposing you. That is one problem that you will not be able to get over. You will not be able to overcome that one, to be sure. So it doesn't look good for us in this culture. Again, I'm going to make another prophecy. You ready? This nonprofit organization. It does not look good for us in this culture. Anybody not, not think that? I mean, you're welcome to not think that. I'm just saying most of us feel that way. Things are going bad. We just don't know what the answers are. The only way, listen, that good can come again in our culture is a major humbling. It is the only way. We walk in pride and arrogance. What's the cure for that? Humiliation. That is the cure. There is no other cure. There is no counseling that. Pastor Greg it will tell you, he's, he's our staff counselor. The only sin that he cannot counsel is the sin of pride. Because the person, if, if I'm, if all of my other sins, if I don't have pride, then you can counsel me about them because I'm willing to listen. But if I have pride, I don't listen because I got it going on and you don't because you think that I don't. And I, in fact, do. So you need to recognize that. I'm awesome. Because that's what everybody's told me, even though I can't score well, and I can't perform well, and I can't do anything well, but I think I can up here. And it is a total lie, and it's a contradiction to scriptures. And it's where we're headed. What, what, so what, what does it take for the United States and the Western culture to become good again? It will take a major humiliation. That's what it will take. And those usually come in the form of wars or disasters or both. I'm just telling you, I'm nonprofit here. It's nonprofit. Well, I'm just telling you, if you they're, they're reading the signs for you. There you go. So, and, in, and not always does that work historically, because I have a nation in the book of the in the Bible called the Jews, called the Israelis, who are humiliated on a number of occasions, and they would not, they would not submit to it. And so God exiled them from their land for up to two thousand years for that. I, I'm telling you, he can ramp it up. Don't think he won't. Humiliation, hum, humbleness is headed. We're all headed there. It's just a matter of will we take it. And the thing is, you're already humble. You already are. It's just realizing that you are. 
God, we talked about sheep. Sheep are dumb. And the dumbest sheep are the sheep that don't think they're dumb. Those are the worst ones. The Bible says, God is my shepherd, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We love that psalm, but we don't understand. It doesn't apply to those who don't think they're sheep. You think you're a deer or something else. It's not for you. But if you know that the Lord is your shepherd, here's how you know, because you understand that you're a sheep, and sheep need to have, they can't leave the presence of their shepherd. They have to have the guidance of their shepherd at all times. Sheep are dumb. They know, if a sheep knows that he's dumb, that's the only thing he's got going for him. I'm going to follow the shepherd because the shepherd knows. The shepherd knows I trust him. But if the sheep thinks that he's got it going on and got it figured out, he's not going to listen to the shepherd. What's going to happen to that sheep? Ah, ah. That's what happens. God opposes them. It just happens. We've got a guy in the Old Testament, book of Daniel, whom God has to oppose because he's full of himself. Nebuchadnezzar, let's read his story. Like I said, did you know that there's an entire chapter in the Bible that was written by the king of Babylon? Well, now you do. Written in the foreign language of Aramaic. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We're going to start there. Sorry. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king, this is him speaking. He's addressing himself, writing a letter to his people. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live on the earth, may your peace abound. This would be a typical way that a king or an affiliate would do some kind of letter to the whole nation. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, this is a different song he's singing here the previous three chapters. How great are his signs, he says. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. He's just like this, uh, uh, he's turned into a Bible thumper. How awesome God is. He's a holy ruler. The first question you ought to ask is, what happened to this guy? Because this is not the same king we've been seeing for the previous three chapters, especially the previous chapter. Just Daniel 3. Just a, just just a quarter inch gap in my Bible was a, a whole chapter of this guy, same dude, making a statue of himself and requiring on pain of death that everybody worship it. And now I've got him in chapter four, a quarter inch away, saying, had nothing, doesn't talk about himself at all and talks about how great the God of heaven is. What happened to him? Here's what happened. One word, humiliation. That's what happened. Between chapter 3 and chapter 4, in fact, chapter 4, he tells us what happens. He is completely humbled. That's what changes about him. He turns into a guy that you would never want to be around, for crying out loud. He'll throw you in the fire if you don't worship his idol. To a guy that you're going to now see in heaven, because he's repented and turned and, and, and put his faith in God. That is a massive change. What changed him was a thing called humiliation. And I would submit to you that, that no one does right that no one thinks right, that no one is right without humility. Just not. Because, because pride and arrogance is, it's insane. It's insanity. It's insanity. It's taking credit for that which is God's. It's being completely, uncompletely unaware of what actually is going on. And that's, by the way, the definition of insanity. The fork in the road between right and wrong, good and bad, smart and dumb, 
is marked with the words pride or humility. You've got to make a choice. They both lead completely opposite directions. Pride or humility. Well, this journey here in Daniel, his, his, this story of Nebuchadnezzar begins actually with, uh, it starts off in a bad way, actually. It starts off not, not good. And how many of you know that God is willing to take you through some dark places in order to get you to bright places? Anybody know that? He's willing to make it hard for you so that he can eventually and eternally make it easy for you. God is willing, listen, to give you a measured amount of pain in this life, deprivation in this life, to deliver you from those things for eternity in the next one. He loves you that much. So, so as he puts us through or allows trouble and deprivation and, and issues in our life, you need to recognize that he's a God who is being good to us, even though our circumstances may not be good. But God is working all things for good for those who love him, right? They're called according to his purpose. You've got to hang on to that. God is working good. The sheep don't know. The sheep go through a valley. It's a dark valley. And all you can think is this is a dark valley. But the shepherd knows what's on the other side of the valley, does it not? He does. And so we have to trust him. The problem is that the sheep don't think they're sheep. So I don't know what God's doing, but I'm going to go some other way. Well, it's just going to get darker the way you're going. And you're going to find that the shepherd who would have been your leader is now going to be in opposition to you because, because he has to. He absolutely has to. So his journey starts off bad, but it ends up good. So he begins to relate his story of how he was humiliated, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream, and I was made fearful. The word is literally abject fear. Like, he's totally, completely scared to death. And these fantasies, he says, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So he calls in, verse 6, all of his leaders and all of his Chaldeans. And he has, has them come in and ask them for the interpretation of the dream. But they, they couldn't know. And it says in verse 8, but finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related to him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, the magi, if you will, since I know that that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with this interpretation. Now these were the visions of my mind. Now he's going to relate to us the dream and it's pretty wild. You think you've had dreams after eating pizza? Man, this guy has a dream but this is not pizza. This is the spirit of God leading him. The visions I saw laid on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree and I will tell you up front, the tree is him. It's, this is about him. But it's not going to go well. At least it's not going to start off. It's going to start off well, but it's not going to go well. In the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth, and the foliage of the beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all, and the beasts of the field were found, found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. And I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Here's the scene changes. If you, uh oh. And shouted out and spoke as follows Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. It's not sounding good for Nebuchadnezzar. Strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, and yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. But with a band of iron and bronze around it. So he's still going to be allowed to exist, if you will, but not very well. And the new grass of the field, notice the change of, it's talking about a tree in a, 
and uh, it, it's, the pronouns are it and it, that it, it does this and it does that. You notice the pronouns change. In the new grass of the field, let him be drenched. So now it's shifted from a tree to an actual man. Like I said, it's, this is about Nebuchadnezzar. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts of the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given him. Does God do that? Apparently. Apparently. Let seven periods of time, which is an Aramaic way of saying seven years. That's a, you ever wonder what it takes to get through to some people? Man. Seven years of being a nut. That's what it took for this guy. This sentence, he says, is by the decree of the angelic watchers. The decision is command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. See, up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he got it all by himself. I did it all myself. This is all about me. I'm awesome. I'm incredible. Self-esteem. Self-esteem. I'm incredible. And God says, you're about to learn a tough lesson, my boy. And he does. You get the interpretation in verse 18. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19. And Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for while his thoughts alarmed. Daniel, is, is, God gifted him with the ability to interpret dreams. He immediately sees it. This is about him. Oh, my goodness. And by the way, he loves Nebuchadnezzar. He's been serving him some probably 25 years at this point. This is not a young Daniel anymore. This is a middle-aged Daniel. This is a 50-year-old Daniel. He's been serving Nebuchadnezzar for a long time, and he's appalled by this because he knows who it appoints to. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to those who are your adversaries. And he says, the tree you saw which was large and grew strong and et cetera, et cetera, down to verse, all that it did. Verse 22, that tree, he says, is you, O king. For you have become great and you've grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and the dominion and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And in that the king saw an angelic watcher and a holy one descending from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. And yet leave the stump with his roots in the ground, but with the band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods or seven years of time have passed over him. And this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the most high, which has come down upon my Lord, uh, the king, that you be driven away from mankind. Now he's given him the hard line and your dwelling place be with beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat. Like cattle to be drenched with the dew of heaven, seven years of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler of the realms of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. It goes on to say, King, repent. Turn, lest so that God will be patient with you. Stop what you're doing. I don't know what's going on in your life, but change because Daniel's completely convinced, of course, that God says what he means and means exactly what he says. And uh, the king doesn't, do that. It's always better to humble yourself than it is to be humbled. It always is. Just a word to the wise. I've been both, and you like it far better if you come first instead of having to be made to come. You kneel first until, instead of having to be made to kneel. You will like that better. It will be easier for you. So 
He doesn't do that, though. A year of time passes. So, so something impressive happens in your life, and you're waiting for things to take place, and then a year passes. Do you forget it? Yeah. He did. Verse 28. And this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon? Here we go again. The great which I myself is built as a royal residence by the might of my power and by the glory of my majesty. Aren't I everything and awesome and doesn't everybody owe me everything and all that garbage? And while the word was in the king's mouth, verse 31, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you is declared that it, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. God gives it, God takes it away at his will. God gives money, God takes it away. God gives authority, God takes it away. God gives health, God takes it away. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Is that he's sovereign, not you. Sovereignty has been taken away from you. By the way, he doesn't owe you an explanation, and he's still good if he takes it away from you. You know that, right? Because he doesn't owe you anything good. That He doesn't owe you anything good. We'll get to that. You'll be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods or seven years of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it upon whomever it wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers. And his nails like Berkeley, seven years in the woods, not trimming your fingernails or cutting your hair. What does it look like? Eating grass and acting like a hog or a cow or whatever. Know that God knows how to humble people. Know that. Know that. By the way, this, this condition is actually a psychosis and it has a name. Uh, it's been documented in modern times. Zoanthropy, it's called. In fact, there have been several documented cases of a person who literally their psychosis is, is that they, their mind changes and they think that they're an animal. They start operating and living like an animal and eating like an animal and acting in every way just like an animal. In, in particular case, about 100 years ago, in a sane asylum, there was a man there in, in England who had this zoanthropy. And he was, it works out in different ways. Some people climb trees and some people in this case, eat grass, think they're cattle. And I'm literally, I'm not trying to be funny. They climb trees, they turn into, you know, who, who, in their minds, they turn into whatever, they, whatever their mind thinks they are. In the case of this man, this malady, uh, his mental symptoms included spending entire days from dawn till dusk. He would have spent from dusk till dawn also outside, but they, of course, made him come in. He was in an insane asylum. They had to take care of this guy. But every waking moment, he was outside and he was living off the grass in the courtyard of the of the insane asylum. In fact, not only they found out, they watched him because they were trying to calculate and analyze what this guy was doing. He would only eat certain kinds of grass. He would not eat all the grass. He would only eat certain species of grass. He would not eat any weeds and we would not browse off of any of the bushes or anything like that. By the way, if you've had a cow, just like a cow, they like certain grasses because they taste better. That's, that was their conclusion, by the way. Anyway, they were convinced of this man if they turned him loose but he never, in all the time he spent in the insane asylum, ever ate anything else and never drank anything but water, even though everything was offered to him. He was only made to come, he only came inside because he was made to come inside. And they were convinced that if they turned him loose, that he would go out into the wilderness and never come back. So, so this is a documented uh, psychosis. So, but, so let me just say this, back, back to God's humbling of us. God knows how to humble people. So number one, 
Don't make him do it. Because notice, he had to be made to do it here. He gives him a year's warning. Gives him all the opportunities in the world, and the guy still is full of himself. So don't think he can't, and don't think he won't. He will do it. Proverbs, we, we saw it, right? Pride goes before destruction. That God's not making exceptions for you. He's not going to make exceptions for you. You will, you will be broken on this, but this will not be broken. It will not. You're going to keep with your pride and your haughty spirit, then you will fall and you will be destroyed. Asked Nebuchadnezzar. He had a real good dose of that. It works the same way every time. Well, how dare God take away what this man has and even his sanity? Well, how dare you think he won't? How dare you? How dare you think that God owes anyone, we already said this, anything, and this is the verse we come to all the time, the wages of sin is death. Have you sinned? Then why aren't you dead? Because God is being good to you, and that's the only reason. By the way, that death isn't, that's not physical death, that's talking about hell. So why aren't you in hell, sinner? Because God is being gracious to you, that's why. And everything you have short of hell is God being gracious to you. He doesn't owe any of it to you. This obviously is what he owes you. But he's not giving you what he owes you. So the high and mighty attitude that you have that God owes you stuff, you need to really get over that quick. But in, instead, God will give you eternal life. God is gracious. God is very gracious to us. He's being very gracious, but he's not giving us what we do deserve, and he is giving us what we don't deserve, which is eternal life through God's son, Jesus Christ. So God is being gracious to us, but how dare you think that God owes you anything good? Because he does not. Pride makes God sick. Any of all of it is taking, taking credit for his stuff. Oh, I made myself. I, I'm here by my own power, and I work hard, and I make right choices, and yeah, who gave you the ability to do all that? Who gave you, how about your health? You know, so I've got all this power and ability and I've got all this smart, smart stuff, but I lose my health, what happens? Who's holding that together for you? If you don't think it's God, you haven't lived long enough. But you're going to get a chance to. Trust me. Who gave you the wisdom and intelligence? Who gave you the opportunity? Who gave you the health? You say, well, that's starting to feel a little humbling. Well, you need to get used to that feeling. That's the way it's going to be. So, number one, he will do it. I mean, so number one, don't make him do it. Number two, he will do it. Number three, here's maybe the most important thing. He must do it. Why, why, why am I going to be humbled? Because God has to. If he loves you. If he loves you, that he's going to take you down to keep you, like I said, a measured amount of pain in this life to keep you from an eternal amount of pain in the next life. He loves you enough to do that. He really does. Any parents here? Discipline your kids. You didn't discipline your kids. You're paying the price now, let me tell you. You gave your kids a measured amount of pain, deprivation of some kind, physical pain. We spanked ours. I, I got spanked. And I'm damaged for that, let me tell you. It took away, <laughs> took away a bunch of stuff that needed to go out of my life. Uh, 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 you know, we'll give them a measured amount of pain right now to deliver them from a much greater amount of pain later on in life. You have to. Because either, either they're going to hit it now or they're going to hit it then. And when they make a wreck then, it's going to be with kids and with a wife or a child or, or a husband. It's going to be with a career and all these other kind of things. So, so hopefully they'll learn from our discipline now so that they'll be delivered from discipline later. But discipline's coming. They're going to be humbled by it now or they're going to be humbled later. But it's inevitability. So, so, either, so God, and we learn all our parenting skills if they're good from God. So, so God operates the same way humble you now 
so that you'll be ready for the humbling that's to come. You won't be, have to be humbled because you'll already be there. I'm already low, so it won't matter. I'm already down, so that's good. God's already brought me there. So he must do it because it's his nature, because there's something worse, listen, than losing it all in this life. There is something worse. There's something worse, worse than losing your health and your sanity in this life. It's bad, it's really bad, but it is only short term. There is something that is, well, long term, no, it's eternal. And God is trying desperately to deliver us from that. And he, he cares enough to do that. He doesn't have to, he doesn't owe it to us, but he intervenes in our lives because he loves us. So the king finally comes to realization who's really in charge, and he comes to himself in verse 34. But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures forever. By the way, these are the same things he thought about himself prior to this. I am awesome. I have an everlasting dominion. I, my kingdom is going to endure forever. What a nut. Well, he got nuttier so he could get saner here. God is the one who has the everlasting kingdom. God is the one who lives from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? And so his kingdom is restored to him here. He's got it better than he ever had before, but he's got it different now because he's now able to take it with great humility. So, so ends the testimony of someone who gained the whole world only to lose it, only to gain something better. That's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Let me just say these things in conclusion it is the height of insanity to think you're the master of your fate. It's the height of insanity. We've got a lot of insane people out there. Just the facts. It's the height of insanity to play God. We've got a lot of crazy people out there, don't we? It's the height of insanity to think that you deserve or have created anything good for yourself. It's crazy. It's crazy thinking. That's the way pride is. It's only when we submit ourselves to the Lord that our sanity is restored. There was a, a couple, the man was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and they were driving their luxury car, and they drove up to a gas station, and it's one of not Texas, but it used to be Texas, but a, another state where you're required to have gasoline attendants to come up and fill up your car, and they're in charge of handling the gasoline and stuff, and so anyway, they're in one of these states, and he pulls up to get gasoline, he goes inside to get something at the little five and dime inside there, comes back out, and he finds his wife having this long conversation with the gas attendant, the guy's putting gas in the car, and they're hugging and talking like they're old friends, and he climbs in the car, his wife eventually gets in, not interrupting, and he says, who was that? She says, you won't believe it, I dated that guy in high school years ago, he said, really? Didn't say anything to her. Puts car in drive, starts driving through town, thinking to himself, you know, what a lucky girl. You know, she could have had that, but she's got me. Doesn't say anything to her. She doesn't say anything to him. He finally can't hold it in. He finally says, you know, I bet I know what you're thinking. She said, I bet you don't. But why don't you tell me what you're thinking, she says to him. He says, I, I bet you're thinking that you're glad you married me and not him. She said, nope, that's not what I was thinking. She said, what I was actually thinking is if I had married him, he would be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you would be working at a gas station. 
Men that have been married a long time to excellent women know the reality of that. Either you are humble or you will be. Apart from humility, guys, apart from humility, we can't even enter heaven. You can't have eternal life because it requires complete humility to say, I have nothing to offer. I have no merit. I have no good deeds. I throw myself completely on the mercy of heaven whom God has offered that mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. Apart from complete humility, getting rid of all my good deeds and all the things that I think I have for my credit and all the reasons why I think God should move over and let me sit on his throne or whatever pride says to you. All those things and just simply say, I have nothing whatsoever. I throw myself on the mercies of God. The mercies of God come in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice he made for us. Apart from humility, that is not available for you. Heaven is not yours, apart from humility. Why is God in favor of humility? Because he's in favor of heaven. He's in favor of you going there. He's in favor of repentance. He's in favor of you being sane, thinking correctly, not taking credit for stuff that's not yours and all his. He's in favor of you thinking right and, and doing right, to be sure. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you care so deeply for us, that you're willing to give us a measured amount of pain, whether that be through something physical, something spiritual, something emotional. You're willing to give us pain in this life. You're willing to put us through struggles and difficulties in this life so that you deliver us from something far greater, far worse. Lord God, I thank you that the meek inherit the earth, that the humble are going to be the ones who we're all going to be around and that we're going to be one of those. It's exciting to know what your program is for us. It's exciting to see where we're headed. God, I pray that we would avail ourselves the opportunity right now instead of having to be made to bow our knee, that we would bow our knees and say, you're it. You're it and we're not. You have it all and we don't have any of it. If there's anything good in us, it's because you place it in us. If we make good decisions, it's because you helped us make those decisions. If we have opportunities and skills and we have uh, influence, you've, you've given all those things. And, and certainly you can take them away and you haven't done that, God, and we're just grateful to you. God, I pray that we, as Nebuchadnezzar has done, that we would acknowledge you as the one who has all these things and who does all these things. And who, because of your grace, has decided to involve us with you. God, we're thankful for that. Thankful to you that, um, that we can know you in that way. Thank you for speaking to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.